Beginning in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are My Son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to Him a Father, and He will be to Me a Son. And again, when He brings the firstborn into the world, He says, Let all God's angels worship Him. Of the angels, He says, He makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of Your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, Your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? I enjoy going camping a little bit through the summer. And and we usually take about a week and spend it out on one of the islands where we're sleeping in tents and those kind of things. We don't rough it too awful bad. We take air mattresses and, and cushions and stuff and get as comfortable as we can. I think it's been rightly said that camping is is the one thing that people will spend hundreds of dollars at to go be homeless for a week. I remember watching a show a while back. I think it was called Pioneers or something like that. At least that was the intent of the show is they took a, a couple of couples and they put them out in, the, in this area of the wilderness and they had to be like a pioneer. They had to build a shelter to start with. They put up a tent and that was kind of their shared kitchen and they were living in tents. I was kind of intrigued in watching it, but I was thinking all the while, why, are they, why would they do this? I, I see the advances that we've made in technology and things to be a, a pretty much a plus in my life. I like electricity. I like running water. I like indoor plumbing. I, I like a, a lot of these things that we've developed and we've gotten better at over the years. And I find myself thinking, I just, I just don't get it. But I can't imagine why somebody would, for months on end, go out and put them through all these things, harvesting hay with one of those sick, what do you call those, a sickle or something? Those things you swing and cut the grass like that? No thanks. Swathers, combines, those things are, were invented for a reason. And, <laughs> you know, we've, we've made life pretty easy. We have dishwashers and, and clothes washers and dryers. And, and there's a lot of comfortable things that we've got in our world. And I just don't know why anybody would be itching to go back to experience something like that. But when we look at the book of Hebrews, that's kind of what they're doing. Because in the book of Hebrews, they've, they've had the old system. In fact, for, for years, notice the very first two words in the book of Hebrews, long ago. So they've, what they've had from long ago all the way up until now, they've had this old system, the Old Testament, the prophets and, and the angels and the, the, the old tabernacle and this old sacrificial system. And they've had this old system that God instituted a long time ago through Moses and They've had that for thousands of years. But now they have Christ. 
Christ has come. He is the fulfillment of that Old Testament system. And you have a once-for-all sacrifice where your sins are completely taken care of and your conscience is cleansed. Not that old system that had to have a sacrifice every year and, and where your conscience was continually reminded of your sin. They have the fulfillment. They have the, the better. They have the new covenant in Christ. But these people are considering going back to the old. Going back to the tabernacle, going back to the old sacrificial system, going back to their old way of life. And that would be even more foolish for them to do that than it would be for us to cut all of our power lines and, and cap off all the plumbing pipes and go back to the way things were and put up outhouses and, and, and build fireplaces in our house and cut wood and go, go back to all that old way of living. The reason it would be foolish to go back is because Christ is so much better than what they had before. What we're focusing on this morning is the supremacy of Christ. But you know what? It's not only for them. It's not only for their old system that Christ is superior to. I'd say that whatever our baggage is, whatever our past is, whatever our old way of living is before we came to Christ, Christ is superior to that as well. I think of other passages in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul would write to people and say that old way of living, those are the things that we're now ashamed of. Why would we ever go back to those? And so the encouragement for them to cling to Christ because of the supremacy of Christ is the same encouragement that it is to us today. We'd be foolish no matter what's going on in our life, no matter what persecution we might go on through, or no matter what temptation is there for us to go back to an old way of living. We'd be crazy to let go of Christ and turn back to that end. Now, I want to take just a peek forward for just a moment because all of chapter 1 is pointing toward the beginning of chapter 2. Chapter 2 he's going to start out, and we'll look at that in depth next week. But chapter 2 he's going to say we really ought to pay attention. We need to pay attention to the things that we have learned in Christ. And the reason for that is because of all of chapter 1. So as we let's keep that just kind of in the back of our mind as we study chapter 1, is that the reason that we're focused on the supremacy of Christ is because He demands our loyalty. We really ought to pay attention to the things that we've learned about Christ from the people that have taught us. Well, as we look at the supremacy of Christ, we're going to look at at three different areas which highlight His supremacy or show His supremacy. The first one is His position. And in His position, we see that He's superior in this way. He compares Him to two different things. He compares Him, first of all, to the prophets. And it points out that He is greater than the prophets. Notice in verse 1 how it starts out. It says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The main point of all of verse 1 is actually found in verse 2. The first word of verse 2 is the word but, which means He's going to draw a contrast to that. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The point that He's making is, God has taken it up a notch. His Son is superior to the prophets. It's kind of like, remember when we were studying Matthew, in chapter 21, Jesus tells a parable. And in that parable, you have a landowner that rents out his fields to these tenants. And then he goes away on a journey. And when it's time for him to collect the rent from the tenants, he sends servants back to collect the rent. When the tenants see the servants coming... They persecute them. Some of them they beat and send away empty-handed. Some of them they actually put to death. And so finally, the owner says, they beat my servants. They don't respect my servants. They will respect my son because he's not a servant. He's an owner. He's the heir of all things. He's the son. They will respect him, so I'll send my son. And Jesus said they kill the son. But the point is, just as in Jesus' parable, it's definitely taking it up a level 
to send the Son, this is somebody with authority, that's the point that he's making here at the beginning of Hebrews. Long ago, at the point that Jesus came into the world, the Old Testament had been completed for 400 years. So it was long ago. In various times, various places, you know, the Bible took over 1,500 years. God revealed himself to us progressively. Various places. The Bible's put together in three different continents, three different languages. The Bible is an amazing book. When you look at the unity of the Bible, and it's written by over 40 different authors covering, covering 1,500 years, uh, written on three different continents, three different languages, this is an amazing book. You know, every once in a while I, I hear somebody make a comparison of the Bible. Oh, the Bible's like the Koran. The Bible's like, the Bible's not like the Koran. The Koran's the ideas of Muhammad, one man. The Koran wasn't written over 1,500 years. The Koran didn't have 40 different authors. There is not another book in the face of the earth that it compares to the Bible. It's a unique, distinct book. The Bible is written to us in many different ways. The Bible contains his, history. It contains narrative. It contains poetry. Some of it's proverbs. Some of it's songs, the Psalms. It contains prophecies. It contains many different types of literature and many different ways that God communicated to us through those prophets. Some of it was even actions. I think of, uh, I think of Hosea and what he had to do and who he was told to marry and, 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 and how his life had to communicate God's message, even to the naming of his children had to communicate God's message. It's not, not just the things that he said, but the things that he did as well. And he's not shooting it down. He's not diminishing it. He's not saying that the, the Old Testament's not true. It's absolutely true. It's just not complete. And so he's not diminishing it, but he's saying, look now, we've, God spoke to us through those prophets for all these years. Now he's speaking to us through his Son. Jesus didn't diminish the, the Old Testament Scriptures either. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, and verse 17, it said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. So Jesus didn't do away with the law or the prophets. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, it says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it looks back on that old, those Old Testament Scriptures and recognizes that those weren't the prophets' ideas. Those were God's Word. He was bearing them along as they produced His Word. That's why it's the Word of God. And that's exactly why in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10-12, through 12, it says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that they have now, have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. It says that these prophets, when they were writing down the Word of God, as soon as they got done writing it down, they turned around and studied it, trying to find out what time is this talking about? Who is this talking about? When is this salvation coming? They didn't know. In fact, it was kind of interesting. I think a week or two ago in adult Sunday school class, we were talking about this idea and we recognized something. We recognize that when we study Isaiah today, we know more about what Isaiah meant than Isaiah knew when he wrote it. 
Because we get to see it from after Christ did what He accomplished. Things that Isaiah was looking forward to, God was writing through him, and he's trying to figure it out. That's, that kind of brings us to a whole point. Is that God, with what He was accomplishing back during the prophets, what He was accomplishing in their lives and in them, it was incomplete without us. Because the things that God was telling them were not only for their own benefit, but even more for our benefit later when the Christ would come, and then for us to see that and learn that about the Christ afterwards. And that's why in the book of Hebrews, when we get up to chapter 11, verse 39 and 40, it says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. So he's looking back at these Old Testament heroes of the faith, the things that they were promised by God. He says, all of these people have one thing in common. They all died without receiving these promises. And then verse 40. Since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. In other words, those Old Testament believers and all the things that they clung to and held to, the promises that they looked forward to be fulfilled, they are incomplete without us who would receive Christ, receive those promises on the other end of it. And altogether it becomes one completed package. And so we see that as God gave His Word through those Old Testament prophets, that it absolutely was inspired Word of God. It absolutely is the truth of God. But it was not the complete truth of God. They would be completed by the message of Jesus Christ and the cross. They who put their faith in God before, looking forward. Us putting our faith in God, looking back and looking forward to His return. All complete the picture. So he's saying, you know, for us to go back, to turn back to that old system, he's saying, do we really want to go back to the prophets when we've got the Son of God? Christ is greater than the prophets. Not only is he greater than the prophets, he's also greater than the angels. He makes that comparison and it says in verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So in that verse, it calls him superior and more excellent than the angels and his name than their name. Now, notice from then on, from from verse 5 all the way through verse 13. Verse 5, notice what it says. He starts with this question. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You're my son, today I've begotten you. Now, he's he's starting, he's going to quote Old Testament passages, Psalms 2, 2 Samuel 7, 14. And uh, he's going to quote many Old Testament passages as we go through here. We're not going to look them all up. But he's doing the same thing all the way through this passage. Because now, notice that at the beginning, as we pointed out, it says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, and then he quotes an Old Testament passage. Now look toward the end. Look in verse 13. He says again, and to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then if you look in between those, you have all these little words and phrases. Like uh, notice uh, in in verse uh, 5, halfway through, After he quotes one passage of Scripture, he says, or again, and he quotes another passage of Scripture. In other words, when he says, or again, he's still carrying forward that thought of, to which of the angels did God ever say this? Or this? Or, and you see, he keeps using phrases like that, or again. And then he'd say, again, and, but, and he'd make a contrast at that point. The point is, he's carrying this thought all the way through. To which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son today, have I begotten you? To which of the angels did God ever say, you sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? The point is he's saying, he never said any of this about any angels, but he has said this about his son. 
And so we see the supremacy of Jesus Christ in being compared to the angels. We see his supremacy in his position, that he's greater than the prophets, he's greater than the angels. As we continue in this idea, we also see that he's greater in his person, because it describes him and who he is. Notice it starts out primarily in verse 3, but we'll continue through the rest of the chapter as well. In verse 3 it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. It reminds me of Colossians. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You know, when I think about that term, radiance, I always think of the sun. Because that's I love being out on a sunny day and feeling the radiance of the sun, especially this time of year. When you get in the 20s here and the sun is shining, that can feel pretty good. In fact, our house, if you go sit on the deck up close to the house, you can feel the heat of the sun radiating off of the siding of the wall behind you and the deck underneath you, in front of you. And you can sit out there. If you close your eyes, you, you can pretend there's no snow around because you, can, because you just feel the warmth radiating off of that sun and it just feels good. Radiance is how you experience the sun. You think about that? You don't experience the sun... You don't feel that without feeling what you're feeling is the radiance, the heat radiating off of the sun. Well, how do you experience God? Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. He is Jesus Christ. We experience God the Father through God the Son. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. You can't experience God through that old sacrificial system. You can't experience God through the keeping of the law. You experience God through His Son, Jesus Christ, because He is the radiance of the glory of God. But it also says, He is the exact imprint of His nature. And whenever I think of this passage, in fact, I'm sure you've even heard me say this before, but I remember when I was a little kid, and at Christmas time, my mom would roll out sugar cookie dough on the table, and he'd pull out the drawer of these cookie cutters, and he'd start cutting cookies out of the cookie dough. And exactly what you see in the cookie cutter is exactly what you see in the dough when you lift it up. It's the exact imprint. And it's, it's talking about the deity of Christ. It's showing that he is God, because he is the exact imprint of God's nature. Also in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. But in the rest of the passage, we're going to see that there's things that are descriptives or things that happen with Christ because he is God that would not happen otherwise. First of all, we see in his person, we see that he's worshipped. Because notice in verse 6, as it quotes an Old Testament passage, He says, and again, he brings the firstborn into the world. He says, let all God's angels worship him. If Jesus was not God, that would not happen. In fact, when we look through the Bible, we find a few places where a person is worshipped. And it is always rejected. There is a place or two in the Bible where we find angels being worshipped. And that is always rejected by the angels. But we find several places in the Bible where Jesus is worshipped and it is always accepted. Jesus never turns it down. But when we look in Acts chapter 10, verses 25 and 26, Peter is there. Peter enters in and Cornelius meets him. And Cornelius falls down at his feet and worshipped him, it says. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. Peter would not accept worship. The Apostle Paul and Barnabas, the same, when we get to Acts chapter 14, they performed a miracle. And 
these people thought because of the miracles, these guys got to be from God. They got to be gods. And so they actually even named them. They named them, uh, what was it? I think they named them Zeus and Hermes. They start to worship them and they start to get together a sacrifice. They're going to offer a sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas as these gods and they're going to worship Paul and Barnabas. Well, they're speaking in an unknown tongue, so Paul and Barnabas don't know what's going on. They don't, they don't real, realize. And then all of a sudden they get an idea of what's going on and they realize it and their response, they come out and they tear their clothes. It says, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Well, in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10, even the Apostle John gets kind of caught up into it a little bit. It's talking about an angel that was talking to John. He says, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and, and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And so you see, whether it is man or angel throughout the Bible, they never accept worship. But Jesus accepts it every time. Well, not only uh, do we see that he's worshipped, we also see that he's eternal. We see that he's eternal, and we notice in verse 8, he says, But the, of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And then notice what it says in verses 10 through 12. It says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. So it's showing that Jesus had to begin before he began here. Before he was born as a man, he already existed in the beginning. He says, you laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And so it's pointing out the fact that Christ is an eternal being. He's eternally God. In the, in the beginning, He was already there. Just like Genesis starts out, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God was already there, started to create. John begins very similar. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was already there in the beginning. And He will have no end. He is eternal. Not only is He eternal, but He is righteous. He is righteous. Notice in verse 8 also, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And so Christ's kingdom is very different from the kingdoms of this world. Christ's kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. And then is also described as being immutable. It's a theological term that we use to talk about the unchangeable nature of God. God, because He is already perfect, does not change. He is immutable. He is unchanging. And as we look at the passage here, verse 11 and 12, it says, They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will have no end. How do you change perfection? How do you improve upon what is unimprovable? And so we see the immutable character of God. Well, we've seen that he is supremacy shows itself in his in his position. We see that it shows itself in his person and we see now that it shows itself also in his power. 
Because as we look at the power of Christ, we see first of all that His power is evidenced in this passage in His creation. It is made very plain and very clear that Christ is the Creator of the world in which we live, of the heavens and of the earth. In verse 2, it talks about being an heir of all things and through whom also He created the world. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, it points out the same thing. It says, By Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. So we see His power in His creation. But not only in His creation, we also see it in His sustaining work. He's a creator. He's a sustainer. It says in, in verse 3, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. You ever wonder what gravity is? Why gravity? Why does the density of something make it hold objects to itself? On our planet, with as fast as it's spinning, why do we stay on it? You'd think we'd all go flying off. Well, we would, except for gravity. Well, what is gravity? We don't know. It just is. (laughs) I think it's a sustaining power of Christ's Word. It's it's the way that Christ is upholding the universe in in His hand by His power. Why do we have gravity? Because God made it that way. That's why we have gravity. Because Christ is sustaining what He created. He created the world and He's holding it all together. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17 says, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Laminin is the stuff in your body that holds you all together. It's like the, the glue that holds all the little molecules and everything all together. Googled laminin on my computer, and it comes up, and there's an image, and you know what it looks like? It looks just like a cross. It's kind of cool. Well, what is laminin? All we really know about it, I think, all we know about it is it's what holds you together. Well, why does it hold you together? Well, because Christ is sustaining you. In Him, all things are held together. He's the creator and the sustainer. If He lets go, it all flies apart. It all blows apart. He is the sustainer of His creation. And then lastly, He points out, and this where becomes very practical to us. Well, uh, the last thing that he points out in the power of Christ is his, that he's a Savior. Because notice at the end of that verse 3, he says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. You know, when I, when I look at that Pioneer show that I was telling you about before, I, I, just, I get plagued with that question, why? Why do you want to go back and live without power? Why do you want to go back to outdoor plumbing? Why do you want to go back to being out in the, in the, in the brush with the bugs and all that kind of stuff and being eaten up by mosquitoes and living in tents at night and dealing with the elements and the rain and the coming snow? Why do you want to, why do you want to try to hew logs to make a home when we've got sawmills and sheetrock and all those different things that are great? Why do you want to do all that stuff? Well, the writer to the, to the epistle of the Hebrews is saying, Do you really want to go back? In Christ, we have the purification of our sins. When He made purification for our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Father. That's one thing a priest never did. There was one seat in the Holy of Holies, and it was the mercy seat. It's God's seat. No chair for the priest. You want to know why? Because His job was never done. He had to offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, and when He's all done with that, you've got to do it again. His job was never done. But Jesus went into that holy place and He offered Himself as a sacrifice for our sins once and for all. And now He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Job over. 
Job well done. So he's saying now we have the purification for sins. When he completed the purification of our sins, the old priests were never, it was never completed. He says once he completed that, he sat down at the right hand of God. He's, the point he's making is this. Do you really want to go back to not having the purification of your sins completed? Do you really want to go back to have to offer a sacrifice for a sheep over and over again because of your sins? Do you really want to have to go back to that tabernacle or the temple? They'd be crazy to do so. The only proper response to a Savior like the one we have is to cling to Him, to pay attention to Him. And that's exactly what He's going to encourage us to do in chapter 2 next week.